Merry Christmas, everyone. So in the spirit of Christmas, for the last two and a half, three weeks, in our house, things have been going missing. And so I'm like, I'm like in the bathroom and I'm like, babe, where are my fingernail clippers? And she's like, I didn't take them. I don't know. And where's my brush? I'm like, I don't know. Then Hill comes into the room. He's like, hey, where's my checkers board? And we're like, what is going on? Okay, hey, family meeting, everybody downstairs. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm like, and, and, and none of it's like Grand Theft Auto, like our TV hasn't been taken. It's just little things that are kind of strange that are going missing. <laughs> and so finally, Judd cracks under the pressure and he's like, I've been taking your things <laughs> and wrapping them up <laughs> and putting them under the tree. Here's a picture of one of the packages. <clears throat> and I go, Judd, stop wrapping our things. And he just like leaves the room and starts crying. And I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, buddy, what? And he goes, I don't have any money. But he wants to give us gifts. <laughs> so he takes our things, wraps them and puts them under the tree, which is super cute unless you're living that reality. And then it's <laughs> maddening. <laughs> The Lord has given us things, and they're wrapped. They're wrapped up in Scripture, and with a little bit of explanation and interpretation and application, we will find the most incredible gifts right here within Scripture that the Lord has given to us. They are ours if we are in Christ. They are gifts from us that as we unwrap the pages of Scripture, we will find them to be completely transforming in our lives. And we're going to unwrap three of those today. Uh, before we do, Hitler died on April 30th, 1945. I know, it's a weird, it's a weird turn. Uh, I don't know how to transition from Judd wrapping gifts to Hitler dying, but so it is. Hitler died on April 30th, 1945, and you would think with Hitler's death would become the end of World War II, that, all right, that's it, like the, the fighting's over. And yet what the Allied forces found is that they were still meeting resistance from the Third Reich and from the soldiers. They're advancing into now Germany. Not only that, Hitler had appointed uh, Admiral Donitz to be his successor. And so at Hitler's death, now Admiral Donitz was in place for you know, about 30 days. And what they had done collectively is they had knighted or established an underground guerrilla civilian warfare unit. And so now you had plain-closed Germans walking the streets of Germany amidst the Allied troops who were advancing in. And then all of a sudden, one of these civilian troops, they were called the werewolves, would attack unsuspecting. And so though the war was already won because the foe, Hitler, had been defeated, there was still this unseen force of resistance against the Allied troops. The war was won, and yet they were meeting this unseen resistance, and so it is with all of us. That there has been a definitive defeat of Satan that was prophesied early in Genesis found its partial fulfillment at the cross of Jesus Christ and will one day in Revelation 20 find its full fulfillment. The foe has been defeated and yet we still, as Christians in the church, are met with this unseen resistance and force of a spiritual battle in a war that has already been won. 
and has already been won. And so you need to know today, you need to know in your life, no matter what sin you have ever committed or what sin has ever been committed against you or whatever circumstance you may find yourself in, you were made to be saved. You were made to be saved, to be reconciled to God, that he is after you because he loves you. You are his creation. And we're gonna see that today in three incredible gospel truths as we unwrap them in the pages of Genesis chapter three. Today is the completion of our made series as we've been journeying through verse by verse in Genesis one through chapter three. And now at the end of Genesis chapter three, the completion of made and it is made to be saved. In the roadmap that we're gonna go through will be Genesis 3.15 and then also verses 21 through 24. We're not going to give focus uh, to the three curses that T.A. touched on some last week um, with, with man and the, the curse of, well, not that work is cursed, but that the, the work is now pushing back against, or the, the curse of Eve with the, the pains of pregnancy, or the curse of the serpent as he now will crawl upon his belly eating dust. But rather, we're going to focus on these definitive gospel movements of God on behalf of all of mankind. And the three that you're going to see as you follow along and made to be saved is that we are saved from Satan, we are saved from sin, and we are even saved from ourselves. Made to be saved. And so first, made to be saved, our God saves us from Satan. Verse 315, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The you there is Satan. He is our adversary. He is our accuser. He is God's enemy. He will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And not just between she, sorry, he and Eve, but rather between your offspring, all the offspring of the demonic forces of darkness that Satan rules with, but also her offspring. We know from Genesis 3.21, that she is the mother of all living. And so Satan has now been put in enmity with all of mankind and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and there we find a prophecy. This is Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head, Satan's, and you, Satan, shall bruise his, Jesus's, heel. We're gonna walk through this. First, there is the bad news, the bad news of the enmity between humanity and Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. The Hebrew word for enmity, eva, is not like, hey, we don't like each other. It is arch enemies unto the death. This is the same enmity word that is used for Israel against the Philistines. This is, this is a, a, a battle in this, a cosmic battle with us and humanity and Satan and all of his forces, this enmity. In World War II also, before the U.S. was a part of it, there was an air commander officer named Kermit Tyler. Kermit Tyler was stationed in Oahu, in Hawaii. And Kermit had, had no training He had no supervisor and he had no staff. But as he's watching the radar one day, he sees a formation of planes coming in. Now he thought, well, surely these are the the B-1 bombers that are returning in from the mainland. And so literally said, quote, don't 
worry about it. That was what he gave as he saw this unseen shapes appearing on a radar. Don't worry about it. And I would say scripture offers a completely different vantage point that, that, that similarly as these were unseen to Kermit Tyler, he was just, they were showing up on a radar but he couldn't see them with his naked eye and thus said, don't worry about it. Scripture is like, no, no. You need to be very aware of it. There is an unseen force coming at you. This is Ephesians 6. Here you will see the enmity between humanity and Satan. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is from Genesis 3. Now all the way into the church age in Ephesians, Paul writing by the Spirit is like, no, no, you, you need to be aware of the enmity that began in Genesis 3.15. He's after you. He hates you. And yes, the war is won, but the battles rage on. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's bad news. That's really bad news, that we have an unseen enemy like the werewolves, like what was showing up on that radar. We have uh, spiritual darkness against us, but there is good news. With God, anytime there is bad news, he comes in with greater good news to push back the darkness. And so immediately on the heels of that enmity, he offers Hope, incredible gospel hope. So here is the good news of the seed over Satan, the seed of the woman that would one day come, Jesus, God in flesh, who's coming to crush the head of the serpent. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first, you meaning good, like eulogy, a good word, and then angelion means message. The first good message right here. From the first sin comes the first covering of good news. God bringing in good news at the bad. It says, he shall bruise your head. Again, this is Jesus bruising the head of Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. My parents live in Missouri and uh, in the Ozark Mountains, beautiful land, but my dad was out giving water to a neighbor's dog one night, and so he's there, he'd walked across kind of the alley, he's, he's filling up the water bowl, and all of a sudden like feels this incredible sting on his foot, looks down, and there's a baby copperhead latched on at his ankle, and, and just like released all that poison. Uh, baby copperheads, they don't control their venom, they'll just release it all. And so I go to visit my dad, and he is laid up on the couch, and his leg is swollen like it's gonna burst, and he couldn't move. But on the third day, <laughs> I don't know if it was the third day, but I, I gotta make a gospel connection here. On the third day, my dad got up from that couch and he made war against copperheads. Like 12-gauge shotgun, garden hoe, I think his count was 33. He went after the copperheads and he was victorious. It is now safe to go to their house. That copperhead struck my dad's heel and then my dad crushed the head of the copperhead. It's the same thing that Jesus did. Satan thinks he deals this, this mortal blow to Jesus as he strikes the heel. But the heel is not a place where you can receive a mortal wound and no one took Jesus' life. He laid it down. 
in glad submission to the Father for the salvation of anyone who had placed their faith in him. And so Satan, thinking he's victorious with the poison of death, Jesus rises again and crushes the head of the serpent in an already, though not yet, way. Already, because at the cross of Christ, there's a definitive theological truth and reality that he has defeated sin, death, and Satan. And then one day, will finally and forever defeat Satan on our behalf. Here it is in Isaiah 53, a prophecy 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Satan didn't crush him and cause him to suffer, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. In the Levitical sacrificial system, a sin offering was always unto death. It's not like a wounded animal. The animal would die because of sin and be offered unto the Lord. Here, he makes his life an offering for sin. But listen, he, Jesus, will see his offspring, the sons and daughters adopted through the father because of him. Well, if he will see his offspring after having been a sin offering, right there you've got the resurrection already in Isaiah 53, a trampling of death through death and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, there's the striking of the heel and the apparent death forever. He will see the light of life, resurrection again, and be satisfied. Here is this gospel good news. Listen, by, by his knowledge, my righteous servant, in, him, in whom there is no sin, is a righteous servant, the suffering servant, many he will justify many to be made right with God. Our sin has separated us from God, but through my righteous servant and his suffering, his life being a sin offering, and he will see the light of life in his offspring, the sons and daughters, he will justify many, bringing them back into right relationship with God through his death and resurrection. And it says, and he will bear their iniquities. So, this is Satan's bruising of Jesus' heel, Christ upon the cross, but he raises again, doesn't just raise again, but the prophecy that is there in that first gospel says that Satan will strike his heel, but Jesus will crush or strike his head, that this was not a mortal wound, but the one dealt upon Satan will be. And so when Jesus deals with Satan, it will be final, but it will not be annihilation. Annihilation is to cease to exist. But a, a spirit, as our spirits are immortal, and angels and demons are immortal, and so they can't be annihilated, they will live forever in heaven or hell, in the presence of God or away from it. And so here you have the finality of he shall bruise your head. It's Revelation 20. From Genesis 3 now to Revelation 20 in the back of the book, it says, and the devil who had deceived them, being the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so knowing this, knowing this, that at the first sin came the first good news and the prophecy that though there is enmity, there is good news that one is coming who will strike the head of the serpent that on behalf of that good news, we have nothing left to fear. Because our conquering king, he has saved us from Satan. We were made to be saved, and if we have, if we placed our faith in Jesus, then we have nothing left to fear. 
In World War II, when Churchill, when Winston Churchill heard the news of Pearl Harbor, he was in a room with another man. He began dancing with that man, not at the loss of life of the Americans, but at the coming reality of that event. He began dancing, then he took a bottle of whiskey and a cigar, walked into his war room, slammed them on the table, and declared, in 1941, the war did not end until 1945, declared, the war is over. His war captain looked at him in astonishment, dumbfounded, in silence. And so one finally got the courage to speak up and say, Churchill, we just almost last thousands in Dunkirk. France has been overrun. They're at our doorstep and London is burning and yet you say the war is won? The war is over? And he leaned over the table and said, and says, gentlemen, the Americans may be slow to fight, but once they are drawn in, they will see it through. The war has been won. And because the war has been won through the resurrection of Jesus, we then now know the war is over. Satan's been defeated. We're living in this in-between, but we do not any longer hunker in the bunker to try to be safe, but rather we advance this advancing kingdom that will have no end in the confidence of Jesus Christ, knowing that he has saved us from Satan. Now and forevermore. And so my question to you this morning is what fear is keeping you back from what God would have you do? Satan, it says in Hebrews 2, dangles the fear of death over every believer. Don't step out of line. You, you stay in that bunker. If you step out, you will get killed. You'll get hurt. You'll be mocked or scorned or shunned. And he keeps us in fear. But knowing now the victory at the cross of Christ that the war is over, though the battle still rages on. What fear is keeping you, and how can you now walk in the courageous faith, which is one of our values here at the church, walk in courageous faith, knowing we were made to be saved, and he has saved us from Satan, to push through that fear and see the kingdom advance and break forth. We're made to be saved. Our God saves us from Satan. And secondly, our God saves us from sin. We're made to be saved. Our God saves us from sin. And he does it by forgiving us. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Sin against a holy God demands justice. There, there is no other way. Because he is holy, then when there is sin, there has to be justice. It is requisite of the character of God. If there is sin, there must be justice. He is 100% holy and he is 100% just. And so though he is not, he's not a wrathful, angry God, we know that he's compassionate and slow to anger. When there is sin, because of his justice and his holiness, a resulting effect is there has to be wrath. And so what we see here is that there was wrath poured out. He made garments of skins of an animal. Now, he could have made garments of cotton. 
At this point, plants were, plants were established. He could have said, hey, let me, let me show you something. Here's how you, you know, put it in the loom, weave it all together. He doesn't. He doesn't make them garments of cotton. And that was necessitated by the fact that he is just and holy because his wrath had to either be poured out on Adam and Eve or on a substitute. And so it was on this animal. And from that, the garments of clothing. The reason that we know this is from Romans 6.23, where he says, the wages of sin is death. That because of sin, what we deserve is death. That death will either be poured out on us or on the cross, where Jesus took our place as our substitute. I want you to listen here in Romans chapter three, verses 24 through 26. And are justified, that means again, made right with God, brought back together. How are we brought back together, even though we have sin? By his grace, as a gift, the forgiveness of sins, as a gift. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't work your way to God by good deeds, but rather the justification to be made right with God is only through this gift of grace, only to be received through faith, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There are not many paths up the mountain. There is one way to be redeemed, and it is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is the same as when Adam and Eve have sinned and then the wrath of God is poured out on this animal instead of on them. He says that there was a propitiation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Propitiation is a term that means the wrath of God is appeased. And so here, Jesus, just like that animal, comes as our substitute receives the wrath of God that we can be forgiven. This was to show God's righteousness because if he, doesn't, if he doesn't deal with sin, then he is not righteous. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, which is patience, he had passed over former sins. Now that doesn't mean he passed over them like, ah, man, they're really messing up. Don't worry about it. We'll deal with that later. Instead, he's like, okay, there's sin going to deal with that with this first animal in the garden. Then we're going to establish the Levitical system of sacrifices and offerings. But these are all just a foreshadowing until at the fullness of time, Galatians chapter four, at the fullness of time, the seed of the woman will come, be crucified. And so as they were looking forward to the cross, we're now looking backward to the cross in which God, by his divine forbearance, his patience, saying one day all of these sins will be paid for in full because I'm holy and just and my, my wrath will be poured out upon Christ instead of my people because we were made to be saved, saved from our sin. It says this was to show his righteousness at the present time. This is critical. This is amazing so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, meaning he is just, he's the one who is holy, who has been offended by sin, and so he has to deal with that sin. And knowing that there's no way we could work our way up to him, he's like, I am both just and I'm the justifier. I will go to them by Jesus taking on flesh, and I will make them right with me. I will take their place. I will be the animal that would be sacrificed for their sins and give them a garment of clothing. This is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus walking on the horizon, says, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. Now I think as Adam and Eve are like wearing those garments, they have just witnessed the first death that has ever taken place in God's good creation. They've seen the death of an animal, which I'm sure horrified them. And God could have just like killed the animal, been like, all right, my, my, my holiness and justice has been dealt with. The wrath has been transferred to the animal instead of you. He could have been like, okay, that's done. You guys are free to go. Instead, he takes the animal and makes a covering for them. Can you imagine? Adam and Eve, like, catting around town in, in like, that garb. I doubt they were like, this is my favorite outfit. Like, I'm, this, is, this is nice. I bet they were so sobered of spirit, like, Every time they put that on, every morning we're like, oh my goodness, like what this cost, the costliness, the soberness of the reality of that covering. But what God had done is he had covered their internal pain of the sin they had committed and their external shame. He had dealt with both. And for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, you too have a covering. The covering is the blood of the lamb. It said it right there in Romans chapter three that we are covered by his blood. And I think every day how we would live different lives if like Adam and Eve, as we realized and remembered and reflected upon the blood covering to remember the costliness of our covering. That what did, what did my sin cost? The very blood of Jesus Christ. God in flesh died in my place. I, I, I don't think we would toy with, tinker with, tamper with any sin, remembering every day that we're covered by this garment, the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin against a forgiving God. He's not just a just and holy God, but he's a forgiving God. And as he is 100% holy and just, he is 100% full of mercy and grace without compromising either. He is each character quality to the nth and so as he is holy and just, he's also merciful and full of grace. You notice this in Paul and John's writings. They like, I, I would read these and I'm like, come on, come on, come on, let's get to it. Because they would start and say, mercy, grace, and peace to you. And I'm like, whatever, let's get to the good stuff. Until I realize that is the good stuff. That's the gospel. Mercy, the mercy of God that I did not get what I deserved. And the grace of God that I got what I didn't deserve. And the resulting effect that's peace with God. And such compassion. And the resulting effect. When Jesus entered into the synagogue, he walks in. When his ministry is about to begin, he walks in. He says, hand me the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it to chapter 61 and he reads these words and says, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. It was the inauguration of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He was like, it's happening. Here's what he says. You just think about the, the grace and mercy. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, ashes being the symbol of mourning and sadness, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That, like why? Why all this? That they may be called oaks of righteousness. 
The planting of the Lord. You didn't do this. I didn't do this. Like God did it. A tree has no ability apart from itself. It's a planting of the Lord and it is strong. It is an oak of righteousness. Why? That he may be glorified. It is all doxological in nature. God is doing this to be like, I want the whole world and the unseen to behold the glory of God as expressed in the forgiveness. I'll take their mourning and give them a garment of praise. And so mercy is not getting what you do deserve. That animal got what Adam and Eve deserved. Jesus got what we deserved. That was mercy. We didn't get what we deserved. Recently, our five-year-old, Judd, not because he wrapped up all our Christmas gifts, that was cute, but there's some things that aren't, and, and they deserve discipline. And so I called him up to his room and I was like, hey Judd, you're, you're gonna get a spanking because of this, because of what you did, do you understand? And he's already crying and, and upset with the anticipation of the discipline. And I said, you need, you need to come over here, you need to, you need to lay across my lap. And he's, he's like just bracing for it already. And as he's laying there, I begin to hit my own leg. And the sting that I feel right now, by the way, uh, and he just like looks up at me in total bewilderment because he, he heard the spanking, but he didn't get it. I did. And so I like sit him up and I hold his little face. I say, hey, Judd, there had to be a spanking because of what happened, right? He's like, just like in shock looking at me like, yes. I said, but I took your spanking. And it hurt, but you're not gonna get it because I did. And I want you to know something. That is why Jesus came. He came to take our consequence. And you just, I'm just praying these little dots start to connect as Jesus took our place. That is the mercy of God. That our consequence, our sins were laid upon him so that we would go free. But it's not just mercy, it's also grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So if mercy's not getting what you do deserve, grace is then getting what you don't deserve. It's been said that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of the passage in Romans three, I would say it's God's redemption. It's not just riches like benefits, it's redemption. We were lost, enslaved to sin and Satan. But we were made to be saved, and so it is God's redemption at Christ's expense, it's why he came. It's both. We sing to our kids before they go to bed. We'll like, you know, give them back scratches and, and sing a song to the Lord and pray. And one of the songs that I've taught them because I, it means so much to me is Rock of Ages. It's an old hymn. And there's this line within the hymn that is profoundly gospel. It's profoundly Genesis chapter three. The, the garment of an animal, the lamb who was slain, it says this, be for sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. The saving of wrath, save me from wrath, that is mercy. What I do deserve, save me from wrath and then make me pure. There's grace, getting what I don't deserve. You're gonna, you're gonna not only save me and now you're gonna give me what I don't deserve, you're gonna make me pure. Recently our, our son got sick um, and so we got him an antibiotic. 
And after, you know, 24 hours on antibiotic, your fever breaks, you're fine, and he can go back to school. He's not contagious anymore. But about seven days into his antibiotic, he's like, Dad, why do, you, why do you and mom keep making me take this? Like, I'm fine. I'm not sick anymore. And we're like, I had to explain to him, like, well, you got to finish the full course of the antibiotic because if you don't, there's still, the, 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 the war is won, so to say, the, the bacteria is still there and it can multiply. You've got to kill it off altogether. We've got to keep infusing it with this medicine that's killing it because if you don't, the remaining bacteria can multiply and frankly, Uh, The final condition could be worse than the first. Like, you could get even sicker. And so it is in our walk with Christ. We receive mercy. We're saved from the wrath, the fever, the sickness of sin. And then we continue in grace. Every day of our life, partaking of that spiritual prescription of grace because the flesh and sin are still at war with the spirit. And so we have to have this daily infusion of grace to kill off that remaining bacteria of sin until we are forever at home with the Lord. But that Rock of Ages song, have you asked him, have you invited him to be your your double cure, to save from wrath and make you pure? In a room this size, there has to be someone who has never placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And as you bow your heads right now, everyone bow your head. And maybe you just need the reminder, as a thankful child of God, thank you that you saved me from wrath and that you continually make me pure. Or maybe for the first time, salvation you would receive today and place your faith in Jesus. Just pray, ask him to be your double cure. Lord, if, if someone in this room is still sick with sin, I pray right now they would place their faith in Jesus as their double cure, that they would ask you to save them from wrath and to make them pure. May today be the day of salvation. And for the rest of us who already have, may it be a reminder to continually take that prescription of grace. Amen. I want you to see something. I've been talking about Jesus a lot here in Genesis 3 because the enmity and and that Jesus saves us from Satan, he also saves us from sin. And I want to clear my podium here because I want you to see what I see every Sunday that I teach. Every Sunday, whether we're in Genesis or 1 Corinthians or Revelation or whatever, this is what all of us need every single time we gather. It says this, sir, we wish to see Jesus. These were when the Greeks came to Philip the evangelist. It's from John chapter 12, verse 21. And they said, we wish to see Jesus. And I think it's the cry of every human heart, knowing that we have sin, but there's so many, though we know it, there's so many just longing. It's the ache of every soul. And for those wishing to be redeemed, my question to you is, who will you invite to Christmas Eve? Think about it right now and and, and even pull out your phone and send them a text and be like, remind me to tell you something. Hey, what are your plans on Christmas Eve? And they may say, well, I'm I'm with family. Well, we've got five services. Nine, 11, two, four, and 11. There are people far from God. We still live in a nation that that generally celebrates Christmas. And so it would not be unusual at 
all to say, hey, would you come to Christmas? And they will hear of Jesus, the one that they were made to be saved because he saves us from our sin. Invite them. We're made to be saved. God saves us from Satan, sin. And thirdly, we're made to be saved and God saves us from ourselves. He saves us from ourselves by shepherding us. Verse 22 through 24, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Remember, they partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's when sin entered in. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, and the resulting effect that he would live forever, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. At first glance, you're like, man, God, that's like, that's cold. Like, one, one mistake, and boom, one strike, you're out. Like, hey, you're... You did it, you, you wrecked this, get out. Get out of Garden of Eden. That's, that's how it appears at first glance, like, man, that's harsh. That's really strong. I mean, that, one mistake, and, and now they're just ushered out of Eden forever in the flaming sword? Like, man, this is like, kind of amped up strong. It is actually an incredible act of mercy. It's an act of severe mercy. Because when you look closely at it, he says, look, Adam and Eve are in this fallen state. They've partaken, they're, they're like us, they've taken a, a bite of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're now in a fallen state of sin, full depravity of man. If they take of the tree of life and eat of it, they will live in that fallen state forever. And so as an act of mercy, God's like, we gotta, we gotta get them out. Like, like shepherd them out of here. Because they didn't listen to my command the first time, they partook of the tree. If they do that again, they'll be in this fallen state forever. So we're ushering them out of, it's a severe act of mercy, it's shepherding. He is saving them from themselves. And he does so for us. He saves us from ourselves and the mistakes that we would make that would have such consequences, he's shepherding them. I remember uh, almost 17 years ago now when I was going to AA meetings, and I walk in, and I'm just like, you know, listening, and, and there's different phrases and anecdotes. And one of the things that they'll say is, hey, my best thinking got me here. Meaning, when, when I was calling the shots, when I would, thought I was in charge and I, I had it all together, that landed me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, so I'm, I'm going to do step three. I'm going to surrender my life and will to God. I'm gonna let him rule because my best thinking landed me here. In the same way, Adam and Eve's best thinking had them there and so God's like, I'm, I'm, if you'll let me, I'm shepherding. Well, it wasn't if they let them, he was gonna do it anyway. He's like, I, I'm gonna get you out of here to redeem you. But here is the thing. He wasn't just ushering them away from the tree of life. He was ushering them to the tree of life. He was taking them from a place where they were to live in, in a fallen state, never uh, receiving the third tense of salvation, the glorification with, in the presence of God. And so he's like, we're getting you out of here, but I'm not just, not just from that tree of life. I'm gonna move you to the tree of life. 
Jesus who hung upon a tree for you. And this tree of life, when you partake of it, and Jesus said, take and eat. And when you partake of this one, there will be a cleansing, a forgiveness of sin infused in this tree of life. And that tree of life will give you eternal life because you will be born again, not made better. You'll be new. And so it wasn't just, I'm taking you from this tree of life. I'm taking you to the tree of life that you will find in Jesus Christ, always for the redemption of mankind. This third gospel movement that you see, he saved us from Satan. He saves us from sin and he saves us from ourselves by ushering and shepherding us to himself. We were in a gas station on a road trip. When we, when we, when we take a road trip, we'll let the kids, and some of you are gonna parent judge me right now, but we'll say, hey, you can get a salty snack, a, a sweet snack, and a drink. And so the kids are like, and you should probably get a shot of insulin too, but the kids are like, okay, I'm gonna get like sour gummy worms, salt and vinegar chips, and a, and a body armor. And they've all got their plan. And so we walk into a, uh, it was a quick trip, um, it wasn't a Bucky's, so they were already disappointed. But we go into the quick trip, and they've got their selections. And uh, I had seen someone earlier, like I was pumping gas, and I'm like, dude, that, that guy doesn't look right. He had on a backpack. Uh, he was like belligerent, kind of talking to himself, and then walking up to every person. But he was out in the parking lot. We go inside. They've got their goods. And all of a sudden, ching, ching, like walks through the door, and he's just yelling. And I was like, hey, put your stuff down and walk out right now. I'm like, Dad, no. We, what do you mean? Like, we, gotta, we, we need to buy the stuff. I'm like, put it down and walk out right now. And they could tell there was a difference in my voice. Like, okay, that's, that's a different voice that we don't hear too often from Dad. And so they're all like, okay, all right. And we get to the car. I'm like, hey, did, do you know why I had you leave? I'm like, no. It's like there was someone who was up to no good in there who did not have anyone's best in mind. And so I was getting you out. And it's what God does for us. He saves us from ourselves, what we can't even see. Evil around us, evil within us. He's shepherding us to the tree of life, Jesus. But I wanna ask you, because I think we've all got something. Is there something that you're gripping so tight and God's trying to shepherd you away from it? Maybe it's a relationship Maybe it's a business deal and you're like, God, but you know I've been single for so long and I really, I mean, I know he doesn't love you, but he loves me. Or maybe like, God, but you know I've fallen on hard times and if I could just get this or whatever it is, what is it that you're not allowing God to shepherd you to life? The mindset in accordance with the spirit is life and peace, but sometimes we're so resistant and he's like, hey, hey, I want you to get out of here. There's harm here. I'm taking you someplace good, and where is it if we would just submit in glad surrender, fully surrendered to this good shepherd and let him take us where he will? I read recently in Hosea, I was going through Hosea, and um, it's always been there, but I've never seen it. I get to verse 215, second part of the verse, and it says, I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And I almost missed it. I almost just read right by it. Like, I don't know, valley of Accor, that's something in Hebrew. I don't, I, don't, I don't care, I don't have time. But I saw a little superscript number one beside the word Accor. 
I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And so I look down in my notes on my study Bible and it says, trouble. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. God will make your valley of trouble a door of hope. Adam and Eve had a valley of trouble, of sin, and they were at enmity with an unseen foe. And God's shepherded them away from Eden of all places. And he's like, I'm going to make this valley of trouble a door of hope. I have redemption waiting for you as you let me shepherd you out of this. And so it is for every single person in this room, whether you're in trouble or trouble is coming, under God's sovereign care, allowing him to shepherd you, he will, he will make your valley of trouble that door of hope. It's what he lives to do. At the conclusion of World War II, as Allied troops landed at Normandy and began systematically working their way through France and Belgium and Poland on their way to Germany, they carried two things now. A rifle and bolt cutters. Because no longer were they just fighting, though they were. There was still the resistance. They were fighting, but they were freeing. And I know you've seen the pictures of the Jews in the concentration camps and the deportation camps, emaciated, cheeks sunken in, clothed in those terrible ragtag striped prison garments with a frail hand resting on barbed wire, inches, inches from a well-fed allied soldier, haunting images. But they were there to fight and to free to cut every door, to cut every fence, and release the captives. And so it is that once you have been saved by Satan, sin, and yourself, now you go out from here, and you are fighting, and you are freeing. Because there's others who have not yet been saved. They've not tasted salvation. They don't know about Jesus. It says in the scriptures, they live in captivity to Satan, their enemy. And so we go out with the sword of the Spirit and the cutting power of the gospel that they could be freed and their bonds loosed, that God would be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the good news of Genesis 3. We live in the enmity, Lord. We feel the enmity. But we believe those three movements of the gospel that you have defeated Satan. You have crushed his head and will. That you have saved us from our sin through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that you save us from ourselves as you shepherd us this side of eternity. <laughs> we love you. We love you. And we go out from here by your power, fighting and freeing for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.